Amen. Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. We'll look at verses 20 and 21 this morning. <clears throat> there are some Bibles available on the back table there by the uh, kids' coloring implements and books. And, uh, the text is also printed in the bulletin for you. <clears throat> so there are um, certain situations, actually several situations, where I basically expect to be asked, uh, how's the church doing? You know, whether it's hanging out with other pastors or um, family members that I haven't seen for a while, how's the church going? And uh, if you want a well-developed, thoughtful answer to that question, then come join us for our session meeting this Thursday night. Um, we're opening up the meeting for just that purpose. Uh, but in kind of general on-the-spot interactions, I pretty much hate that question, how's the church doing? Um, the people who ask are probably generally well-meaning, uh, maybe slightly interested, actually, but... Uh, it's, it's really hard to know how to answer that question in a meaningful way that makes sense, that has some context for that person, um, <clears throat> that isn't just kind of brushing off their question. Just saying it's fine uh, doesn't really seem sufficient most of the time. So I've got kind of this packaged response now that uh, hopefully doesn't sound dreadfully boring and, um, and also corresponds with reality to some degree. So uh, I basically say, you know, things are going pretty well. Sometimes it's hard, but I think we're doing what a church is supposed to be doing. And, uh, and about half of our congregation is kids under the age of 10 who really seem to enjoy being there. And so we're trying to figure out how to be faithful to them in, in ministry, how to incorporate them in what we do. Um, do any of you do that? I mean, when, when you think about how things are going at Ascension, you think about this church, um, does your mind quickly run to the kids? Is that a big part of what you think about when you think about the church? Um, it, in a few of his letters, including this one to the Colossians, Paul's mind runs to the kids. Right? Um, he's reached a point in his letter to a young church, young believers, uh, families, um, <clears throat> where he's taking the vision of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he's been talking about for two and a half chapters, basically, uh, he's taking the vision of the gospel and he's applying it to the regular relationships we have in this life, the, the ones that we're probably most frequently finding ourselves in, the marital relationships and uh, parental and workplace uh, relationships. And surprisingly, when he addresses the relationship between parents and children, he doesn't just talk to the parents as if they're the only sentient beings who can understand what he's got to say. Right? He doesn't just talk to the parents. Uh, when he talks to the church, he talks to the children like they understand. He talks to the children as if they're Christians. He talks to the children as if they're members of the church in their own right, like they're individual responsible agents before God. He talks to them directly, not through their parents. He doesn't ignore them until they reach a certain age. He ministers to them and seeks to build them up with the same gospel that he seeks to build up their parents with, right? Try to apply the same gospel both to children and to parents. And that has pretty profound implications for a lot of things that we do in, um, as, as a church in our life together, right, in God's grace. So these verses may not seem like anything fancy. They're pretty short. It's pretty simple. Um, but they're particularly relevant to most of us uh, at Ascension at this church and really um, 
not just to us if we're parents, but really to all of us because we're all in this together. So um, let's pray and then we'll read the scripture. Father, as we consider your word, we ask for your help. We ask that uh, the Holy Spirit who has been given to us would illumine our minds and transform our hearts to be able to receive your word and to be changed by it into the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, kids, you're told regularly, I hope, that God loves you, right? Give me a nod. You're told regularly that God loves you. He gave his son Jesus for you. Um, Does God love you because you're a good person? Does God love you because you've done all the right things and perfectly obeyed him? Is that why God loves you? No. I see a couple heads shaking. No. Um, no, you, you, don't first, you don't first behave well and then get God to like you. The way that it works, the way that God tells us it works, is that God first loves you and he welcomes you and he embraces you through Jesus Christ, which then makes us want to behave well, makes us want to please him, right, to do the things that he wants us to do. Once you know that the Lord loves you, then you want to please the Lord at least sometimes, right? At least a little bit, right? Um, well, kids, one of the things that the Lord says pleases him is when you do what your parents say, uh, when you listen to them and when you obey them. And sometimes that's easy, right, kids? Sometimes it's easy to do what your parents say, like when they look at you sternly and say, you go play your video games right now. <clears throat> that's easy, right? You're off to it. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult isn't it? To, to listen to your parents and obey them, do what they say. Am I right? I mean, like, kids, sometimes it's harder when they say, go brush your teeth, that's when you want to run and hide, right? Uh, it's a little bit hard sometimes. Um, sometimes obeying your parents seems very hard, like when you get home from a hard day at school and they say, do your homework, help me in the yard, and set the table for dinner, right? That's, that's some hard stuff. Isn't it? I mean, it's, sometimes it's harder to obey your parents, right? That's when it's helpful to remember that God really does love you, right? God loves you. He proved it by giving his son Jesus for you. He really is taking care of you through all of your life, and it pleases him when you do what your parents say. It's hard for all of us to do what our parents say because we would rather do what we just want to do, right? Um, but kids got to listen to this. God is teaching you how to live for other people and not just for yourself. Right? He's teaching you to love others. He's teaching you how to live for other people. And doing what your parents say is a good way to do that. It's a good way to live not for yourself, but for others. Um, so kids, a little bit more. I know, I'm, the intention span thing. <clears throat> really hard question for you. Hopefully that engages you. Really hard question. What happens when your parents say... Son or daughter, jump over that fence, go into that person's yard, get some apples off that tree, hurry back quick before they catch you. Do you do what they say when when they tell you to do that? No. No, you don't. Why? Because because that's 
sin that we know that that's the kind of thing that doesn't please the Lord, right? Um, they're telling you to steal, and God has said, don't steal. God has said that. Your parents said steal, hypothetically, right? God said, don't steal. Which one are you going to listen to? It's better to obey God than it is to obey people. It's super difficult, I know, when your parents tell you to do things that God doesn't want you to do, you don't do it. But every, everything else your parents tell you to do, God says you should do that. Right? You should obey your parents. When Paul writes, children, obey your parents in everything, he's assuming that since he's writing to the church, um, that your parents aren't going to tell you to, to sin against God. Right? Hopefully your parents aren't telling you to jump, jump your neighbor's fence and go steal their apples. <laughs> right? um, <clears throat> but kids, I'm almost done with you. Hang in there. Uh, you have to know what pleases the Lord. Right? You have to know what pleases God. You have to know what, um, what the Bible says about good and evil. And you learn that by having a relationship with Jesus. Right? And your parents are supposed to teach you about that relationship with Jesus. And you come to church to learn about having a relationship with Jesus. So I'll tell you very simply what pleases the Lord. It's loving God and loving other people. Right? Loving God and loving other people. And your parents should be teaching you how to do that in your life. So you should listen to them and do what they tell you. Um, I'm sure that's more than enough input for one day. Uh, sermon's over for you. <laughs> I'm going to talk to your parents now <clears throat> and everybody else. It says in verse 21, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And this could possibly be translated, Parents, do not provoke your children. Uh, but the focus probably is on the fathers and their significant role in the family. There's been plenty of studies done and uh, statistics that show that the father's involvement in his children's lives is a huge critical part of the, the children's uh, growth in life, especially in spiritual things. Um, I read about this one study that basically says that if the father is not spiritually engaged with his children, if the father's not taking the family to church um, and talking with them about God and life with Jesus, it almost does not matter how engaged the mother is spiritually. The kid will not go to church um, when he grows up. So it's like 2%. Uh, and I don't know all the ins and outs of why this is. And I don't mean to use that information to guilt you as fathers uh, to bringing your kids to church and <clears throat> teaching them spiritual things, uh, investing in their lives. I'm just saying that contrary to political correctness, which probably would have the parents' role and significance as just equal across the board, uh, contrary to that, um, the clear balance of impact in children's lives belongs to the father, especially in spiritual things, which is probably why Paul's writing to the fathers, saying, don't provoke your children. Um, now, that said, <clears throat> when Paul exhorts fathers here, he, what he says applies just as well to mothers, so listen up, all of you, right? Um, you hear a lot of people say there's no one right, perfect way to parent your children. You hear a lot of people say that. Uh, I suspect many people say that actually because they don't want to be examined too closely or questioned too closely or challenged uh, in their own uh, vision or methods of parenting. And it's kind of funny because, you know, you, you hear people say there's no one right way of parenting and then they'll proceed immediately to uh, you feel strongly compelled what they consider to be the right way of parenting, what works for them and uh, what you really should try. Um, and then they'll be offended or fight if someone challenges that. Right? Um, 
I'm not saying that to condemn anybody here. Uh, I've done that too. So I bring it up mainly to point out how invested we are in our roles, in our identities, in our methods as parents, yet simultaneously how insecure we are in those very same things, which um, if you've been around here for any length of time, you'll recognize in that description the recipe for idolatry, right? We are invested, our identities, our methods, our roles as parents, and we're totally insecure about that. You know that this is a big cultural idol. I mean, I probably don't have to tell you or try to persuade you that the family is, especially in the church, um, there's strong potential and danger for it becoming an idol. <clears throat> uh, for example, sometimes when some of you ask me uh, to hang out, you'll ask me when my day off is. And uh, let's look tell you right now, my day off is time when I'm not hanging out with you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, unless you're a really good friend, but then I shouldn't do that because people will feel like I'm playing favorites or whatever, but you know what I mean, right? The day off is the day off, and get me on my days on. But <clears throat> when I just say, oh yeah, Saturday's my day off, people sometimes, well, that'll be great. I'm free Saturday. Let's do that. Okay, well, let's, let's change this. Uh, <clears throat> Saturday's my Sabbath. That doesn't make sense to anybody, right? Um, Saturday is my family day. And you know that that means it's untouchable, right? Everybody just assumes, oh, your family day, that's, well, you don't touch that day, right? Everybody knows. It's just an indicator that generally the atmosphere in our culture is to idolize the family. We make idols of our kids or we seek to justify ourselves through our parenting of our kids. I don't think we're especially unique in doing that uh, as a church, but the matter is clouded by the fact that we think we understand what the Bible says about uh, its basic vision for parenting, but really we, we tend to distort uh, the Bible's vision for parenting to enable our self-justification as parents. Um, we think that we've been given absolute authority in our children's lives so that everything that comes to them from God comes through us and that their obedience to God must be rendered through us as obedience to us. We think that our children are ours. We talk this way naturally and usually I, I don't think we mean anything evil by it. But we really do think our children are ours, that we own them, that they belong to us so that everything that they have is filtered through us and that everything about them ends up reflecting on us. Um, we hope that our children will never struggle with sin the way that we struggle with sin. And our hopes rise and fall with how well we're able to manage that in their lives and produce kind of this sinless product at the end of it. Um, there are certain behavioral outcomes that we are striving for. So our pendulum swinging back and forth goes, you know, goes between parenting methods from one generation to the next, or even from one child to the next, right? Um, we rule with a rod of iron to put the fear of God into them, or we use only positive reinforcements, and kind words with smiles on our faces, rewards and compliments, or we just kind of do the hands-off thing and, and allow them to um, 
to blossom into their full self-potentiality, <laughs> right? Right, we do all of those things um, in order to do parenting right. We wring our hands over which school will be best for them. We worry about the um, corrupting influence of the friends that they're making, uh, how they come home using bad language and acting mean, which causes us, of course, to clamp down on things tighter. Um, we aim for some nebulous idea of success. That if only we raise them in this or that way, we'll be okay, and at the end of it all, we can breathe a sigh of relief and feel good about our accomplishments as parents. Right? We just want that. That's all we want. What a marvelously self-centered view of parenting. <laughs> right? Our children, our children are our equals before God. Did you think about that? Our children are our equals. We don't own them. Just, just like we discussed last week uh, with husbands and wives, right? They're created equal, um, though there's this authority relationship that they're supposed to be in. Um, parents and children are equals. They're individual agents before God. Both of them are equally worthy of honor and love and, uh, and grace, there is an aspect of authority in the relationship, but it's not that God has given you the power of a tyrant over them to mold them to your will through whatever means kind of work, right? Um, again, as we saw last week, Jesus is the supreme example of authority, and his exercise of it looked like humble, self-sacrificial, other-oriented love. <clears throat> and parents are to love their children, and they're to build them up as individuals and believers and agents of God, they're not to declare martial law to ensure behavior that accords with my vision for self-justification as a parent. Right? Um, <clears throat> N.T. Wright says, in a quote in the beginning of the bulletin, <clears throat> children need discipline. So do parents. Constant nagging or belittling of a child is a sure sign of insecurity on the part of the parent the refusal to allow children to be people in their own right instead of carbon copies of their parents or their parents' fantasies. Children treated like this become discouraged or dispirited, hearing continually, both verbally and non-verbally, that they're of little value, they come to believe it and either sink down in obedient self-hatred or overreact with boastful but anxious self-assertion. The parent's duty is, in effect, to live out the gospel to the child. That is, to assure their children that they are loved and accepted and valued for who they are, not for who they ought to be, should have been, or might if they only would try a little harder, become. Obedience must never be made the condition of parental love. A love so conditioned would not deserve the name. So, if you want to wreck your kids view parenting as a task of pressing them into some kind of mold or getting them to behave in a certain kind of way for the rest of their lives. Um, we're, we're to love our kids. And love does not exclude discipline. The one who loves his kids disciplines, right? Um, but discipline should be like a small subset of the relationship that we have with our kids. The first word that comes to your kids' minds when they think of you should probably not be disciplinarian. Right. Um, Julie Lowe is a counselor with uh, <clears throat> CCEF, and she, she, 
a couple of questions that I think are really helpful to, uh, to us to ask of ourselves as parents. Have we talked to our children this week of the delights of living more than the disciplines of living? Have we inspired and guided our children this week more than we have corrected them? Not me. Right? Um, but you know who gets this concept? And this is really really general, really stereotypical. You know who gets this concept of what it means to love the kids? It's the grandparents, right? I mean, it's the grandparents. Don't you as parents envy the kind of relationship that grandparents are able to have with their grandkids? And it goes beyond the joking about, you know, they don't have to change the diapers and they get to go home and actually rest and, um, <clears throat> at the end of the day. But grandparents love their grandkids. They love them for who they are. They enjoy them for who they are. Right? It's actually a good example here. Sometimes grandparents even have to discipline the kids, but usually that's pretty easy for them. Right? Um, it goes pretty well because the kids know that there's love there. It's, it's more than this, some kind of wandering rant. Right? Um, the worst part about us as parents is using our kids to justify ourselves, which leads us to provoke them and ultimately discourage them. Um, but that's the best that we know how to do unless the gospels really work in our lives. Jesus Christ died for your sins to reconcile you to God. You have eternal life and love. They're absolutely guaranteed by his blood. You have a good name and a good standing in heaven that's secured by his grace once and for all. It's done. Right? It is finished. And that says more about you than your parenting ever could in God's sight. Through your relationship with Jesus that comes through faith alone, you could be the best parent in the world, God would not love you more. You could be the evilest parent in the world, God would not love you less. Getting everything just right in your parenting, managing your child's life perfectly, is no measure of success. It really isn't. Instead, now, <clears throat> with the freedom that comes from knowing the love of Christ, the love that God has for you, you are free to love. You're free to truly give yourself for your children, not as one gives himself to an idol that produces bitterness in the end, but as one who gives up his, his time, his life, his preferences, and his demands for people who um, maybe don't deserve it. You're not supposed to break your children's wills. You are not supposed to break your children's wills. You're supposed to build them up in the Lord. And that means, first and foremost, like Wright says in that quote, living out the gospel to that child. That is, assuring your children that they are loved and accepted and valued for who they are. Maybe, maybe that means in spite of who they are. That they are loved and accepted and valued. That's your primary role as a parent. After all, that's what you need to be assured of, isn't it, in order for you to grow as a Christian. The goal of your life is to glorify and enjoy God, to express your thankfulness to him through your obedience and your love to him. And for you, all of this has to come as a response to God's grace. God's grace comes first. His love and acceptance comes first. 
and then you respond with a changed life, it's the same for your kids. The goal of their lives is to glorify and enjoy God, to express their thankfulness to God through their obedience and their love. And if that's going to happen for them, it is only as a response of faith. So that should be the goal of your parenting then, to hold the gospel before them in every way possible. Julie Lowe has another quote. Since parental love is limited and flawed, any comfort I offer my children needs to point to the God who will never leave them alone. Any comfort that I offer my children needs to point to the God who will never leave them alone. Sometimes that's by telling them God loves you. It's all the time, right? Sometimes that's by telling them that and explaining that through a Bible story or relating it to why we go to church so that we can hear about God's love together. Sometimes we convince them of the gospel by demonstrating our own need for the gospel through our humility and through repentance, through our own faith, right? You need to be able to apologize to your children and ask them for forgiveness. You need to be able to be humble in front of them and not just act like this authority figure in their life all the time. You need that humility for the sake of your own soul. And you also need that because it it serves to share the gospel with them for their sake so that they can see how to repent and how to believe. The goal of their lives is, is not to have everything easy. It's not to be without suffering. It's not to be the perfect person. It's not to be the best educated person in the room to have the best job or be successful in whatever the way the world tells you or measures success. So those things shouldn't be the goal of your parenting. As parents, we should be fixed on persuading our children that God loves them, that he'll never leave them, that he's worthy of our trust and our praise and all of our lives, and that his grace makes it okay to confess our sins and to own our faults. We've got to be communicating to our children that the only thing worth living for in this world is what is already secured and freely given to you by God's grace. Anyone living in our homes should sense God's encouragement from us, especially our children. And the same goes for all of us in the church. Anyone visiting our church should sense caring warmth and encouragement from us, not disappointment and a scowl or judgment, especially the children, right? Even if we're not the parents of those children. In the church, that needs to be the atmosphere here. When children are baptized in the church, the adult members take a vow to assist the parents in the nurture and admonition of the Lord with these kids, right? Um, That is to say, we are all committed here to sharing the gospel with the children in a way that fosters true humility and repentance and faith and love. So we do things like have a nursery where we can minister to the kids and have Sunday school where we can train the kids. We welcome them to our home groups and we make them feel part of everything. Right? Um, these children will live forever with us. And one day soon it will be easier for us to see them as equals because they'll actually be as tall as us. Um, but they're our equals. They're going to live forever with us. These children are learning to love forever like we are. So gentleness and grace ought to characterize our interactions with them because that's what we would hope for ourselves and that's how God addresses us in the gospel. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, you are our Father by your grace. You have revealed yourself to be a God who is a Father. And we know that you have loved us in a way that is uh, just beyond our imagining, <clears throat> that we will forever be growing in our delight of your love for us in eternity. And you are a better father than any of us could hope to be, uh, whether fathers or mothers. You're a better parent to everyone on this planet than, um, than we could ever hope to be because of your grace. Uh, your grace which led you to give up the, the life of your own son for our sakes so that we would be adopted into your very family and live with you forever in love. Um, so we turn to you as our father, the one who has redeemed us through the blood of your son, and uh, as the one that we long to be like, we long to be like you as we um, turn in our own lives uh, in, in our um, roles and relationships as parents. And so we pray that you would help us to be more like you, that you would help us to be gracious and kind, that uh, our discipline would not be punishment, but that it would seek the good of our children, that you would help us to view our children rightly as equals uh, in your sight, that we're investing in their their lives in ways that will last forever. And so help us to invest in their lives with love and with grace, even as you have invested in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.